If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Black on the Scene is a love letter to black creators, black content, and black voices who are helping to drive change and representation in entertainment. I'm John Gist, here with my amazing co-host, Dee Dee Brown, and we are two industry professionals that have worked on some of the most iconic multicultural film and television campaigns over the years. The Black on the Scene podcast will highlight the many accomplishments of Black folks across film, TV, music, art, literature, and sports that celebrate diverse and nuanced stories which embody our culture. In each episode, we shout out and give flowers to some culture contributors and creators that you know and those you should know for being Black on the scene. Let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome back to Black on the Scene. Today, we have a very, very, very special guest today, marketing genius, LGBTQ plus advocate, Southwest Atlanta native, and my ace, Roy Broderick Jr. is joining us today for what I'm sure will be a fun-filled, teary-eyed, yes, I'm looking at you, Dee Dee Brown, yes, ah. fulfilling dialogue on today's episode of Black on the Scene. I'm so excited to talk to Roy. He has such an interesting story, having stints at MTV Networks, VH1 Networks, and Turner Entertainment. In 2016, Roy stepped out on faith and launched the Authentique Agency, a full-service marketing agency designed to blend two of his passions, positioning LGBTQ plus and multicultural audiences as an integral component of the brand's marketing strategy. Roy has been lauded by Black Enterprise Magazine as a young marketing genius, and I can 100% attest to that. Under his leadership at the Authentique Agency, he has worked with several notable brands, including AT&T, Instagram, the Dallas Mavericks, Target, Papa John's, IBM, and they serve as the agency of record for the multi-million dollar National Museum of African American Music. So as you can see, my friend is booked and busy in these streets, which is obviously is a beautiful thing to be. I am so happy to welcome my dearest friend, Roy Broderick Jr. to Black on the Scene. Welcome to the show, Roy. Roy! Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you. You know, it's always fun when people read your bio, because you're like, dang, I've been doing a lot of stuff, you know, and you, you know. But yes, and blessed. So, you know, it's all God. It's never me. So, yes. Thank you for having me. Roy, as I was preparing for this show, I was trying to, Dee and I were trying to figure out how did I, how did me and you meet? Where did we, I know you were at Turner Broadcasting at the time, but I don't remember what actually brought us together. Do you remember? No, I think we just met on the South Side, Camp Creek. We just, I think we looked near each other and and met each other and realized we knew a lot of the same folks. And then it was like, how don't we know each other? And then it was just like a match made in heaven. It was a match made in heaven. Now now you're stuck with me and I'm stuck with you. And here we are. Exactly. Um, Thank you so much again for joining us today. Dean and I are so excited to be talking to you. So I wanted to start out with your childhood as young Roy. Who were you as a child and who were you growing up and what were your aspirations, your dreams? You know, what would you what were you trying to accomplish? 
Yeah, so little Roy, um, honestly, was just trying to find his place in the world. Um, I was born three and a half months early, and the doctor told my mama that I was either going to die or I was going to be slow. And my grandmother was like, no, we're not doing that. And, um, you know, so I grew up understanding in life every day that I had to grab life by the horns, make the best day, and really think about what my legacy was going to be because, you know, um, I wasn't supposed to be here, right? Um, And so young me, you know, always wanted to just help somebody. So if I met somebody or even if I got a new Pokemon card, I want, you know, everybody to have that card. You know, I just always had a very generous spirit. And so when I started to work, Um, I started to want to keep that part of me going as an adult. Um, And so that's something I've been trying to do every day. Um, So always an oddball, always unique, um, super social, can talk to a tree as well as a water fountain. And, you know, hey, have a little fun. So this generous spirit that you say you organically have, it sounds like it was really nurtured by two very strong women in your life. I would love to hear a little bit more about your relationship possibly with your grandmother, because I love that she was advocating for you as the strong Black matriarch, I'm sure, of the family. Talk a little bit about her and her influence. Absolutely. So my grandmother was Olivia Pope before I knew who was Kendall was, and she made sure that we were all going to show her last name, our family tree, be seen in the right way. Um, my grandmother and grandfather both grew up poor, um, sharecropper families. And so they worked really hard for everything that they had. And so when I, you know, grow, growing up, you know, they were considered, you know, lower high class, not even really middle class um, in Milledgeville, Georgia, where my mother's from. And um, they used to do a lot. We, they never, we never hurt for money or anything like that, but we saw, you know, Papa go to work. We saw... My grandmother go to work until she retired as a superintendent um, in the school system. But they always were like, you have to know how to present yourself. You have to know how to speak, um, regardless of your background. My grandmother was a stickler for shoes. And that's because she grew up, you know, having to share shoes and get second and third hand-me-downs. And so you would go in her closet and it's just shoes galore because that was just something she would do for herself. And then, you know, something I found out about two years ago, Dee Dee and John, was that my grandparents were actually one of the major funders for both um, MLK as well as um, Dr. Joseph E. Lowry's um, campaigns. So they would literally have rallies and gatherings in the front part of their house, um, and the kids would stay in the back. Uh, But my grandmother was never the type, very soft-spoken, I was never the type to really be seen as an activist. And so um, she taught me the way that you help people and help your community is being able to write a check. She never said, go join the front lines, go speak, go be in front of it. She said to be able to finance it. And so I now have uncovered that that's what they did. And so uh, that, you know, added even more pressure for me to be like, all right, let let me do what I need to do uh, while she watches down from heaven. And my mother, same thing. Um, Once my parents divorced, uh, my mom was just like, look, it's us. We're going to figure this out, uh, as well as my older sister. And we never hurt for anything. We were exposed to everything. I'm from the West Side, Doug High, all that of Atlanta. 
Um, but, you know, I knew what love it was. I knew what fencing was. I knew how to play chess. I went to Dr. Uh, ben Carson's Summer Academy. I always had experiences. Now, I didn't never know how she paid for all this, right, being a computer science engineer for Microsoft. But, um, you know, she she made sure that we were exposed. And now is very much so like I've done my dues. It's up to you all. Um, and so now, you know, we, we see that every day uh, through my four-year-old niece, right? She's next in line and now she's grandma. So she's like, look, same principles. When you grow up and you turn 18, you go to college, you get a degree or you have a business. And so, um, yeah, I kind of didn't have no choice, you know, but I will say, you know, when I think back now, there are certain times in my childhood when I say, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to play around, right? Some of the kids stuff that folks would just do. I didn't do that. My mom was like, you like to travel, you like shoes, you like whatever you like. This is how you get those things. So I learned work ethic very early in life. You learned work ethic too, but I also feel like you, you, because you were probably one of the, my, one of my dearest friends who like, you have this, this knack for like street smarts too. Like you are very much so like oh, hip yeah. to the streets. So- oh, absolutely. <laughs> I know how to cut on water. I know how to cut on gas. I know how to like, listen, don't let this blonde hair fool you, right? Like I tell people all the time, like at the end of the day, I've seen both sides of the track and I never forget some of the struggles that my family had, but I understood that doesn't have to be my story. And so, again, the way that I can help others is exposing them to other things, hiring them um, and really making sure that I'm, I'm paying it forward. Because there's another black gay little boy out there in, that lives in a, in a you know, black neighborhood who maybe not maybe don't feel like he fits in, you know, or might get to high school like me and realize you're the cool black gay guy. They cool with you, but they're not cool with the rest of your community. So you have to educate, you know. And so, again, a lot of things there. Well, talk about that a little bit, too, because you have like, you, you know, just you, in your terms of identifying with being a, a gay black man, you know, at, at a, such a young age. Talk about what that journey looked like to unlock that aspect of your life growing up in, you know. A- Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Very, very black community where I'm, sh- I'm I'm assuming you didn't probably see a lot of that representation oh, around no. you. So mm-hmm. how did that how did you kind of find that inner voice within yourself to kind of just come out and be who you are? You know, my grandmother used to always tell me I was special. She used to kept, keep me very close to her. Um, so now when I look back at it, I understand really what that was. And that was her wanting me to feel like I was not alone in the world. Um, and I also had an aunt that would expose me to movies like Tu Wong Fu and just look at me and I'm excited watching it, not knowing what I'm seeing, but just still like, this is cool, you know? And so giving me that exposure, um, to understand that, you know, I can be all that I can be. Um, the flip side of it is that my father is Jamaican and he is everything of a Jamaican that you would think. Um, without the the dreadlocks, he now is bald headed. But so for me, it's it was a lot of unpacking that had to happen. But more than anything, I know that both of my parents wanted to make sure that my identity didn't overshadow my success and didn't overshadow my my smarts, right? My ability, my capability. And I and I used to say even when I came out that I wanted to be known as Roy. And then you knew I was gay, not the gay boy Roy, because I think that's really important to make sure. Um, that we continue 
to look at people for who they are and not just what they do in their private bedroom. I mean, Roy, you have just really laid the, I think, the foundation for your, the next phase of these questions in your life. And you mentioned this aunt who exposed you to like, I guess, pop culture and movies. And then you go on to work at MTV, VH1. Did that help inspire that interest in entertainment? Absolutely. So my first campaign that I worked on from an entertainment standpoint was season one of RuPaul's Drag Race. So you're talking about jumping in as an intern in college saying, I'm going to go do MTV. I wouldn't tell my parents, oh, I'm technically logo because Lord knows they wouldn't understand what that was. And so when I start to say, well, you know, what shows are you working on? You know, and I'm like, oh, it's stuff you don't know. The New Now Next Awards, Be Good Johnny Weir and RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, um, and, and to now see, you know, the show manifesting how it has and understanding, you know, being a part of that first season and, and being on set and doing helping with the key art and popping up at gay clubs in, you know, in New York and being like, oh, this is really what you see on the movies, but this is real and this is who we have to promote to, um, kind of unlocked it for me. And that's what started my love for just multicultural marketing and kind of segmented marketing, because I think it's so important to understand that, you know, we drive the culture, we drive the trends. And I think a lot of times folks forget that. They think, oh, they'll come along for the journey. We'll get them. And it's like, no, if you start with us, no, they will come. So um, I just think it's really important to do it that way. And, um, you know, I kind of, you know, admittedly, Didi will say, I wish I knew more like now that I know about, you know, the community. I'm like, oh, if I knew this before. ooh, but, um, you know, I I still say everybody's journey is different. So all I can do now is expose um, more and more to to younger folks so they don't have some of those hurdles. Uh, Because Lord knows if you don't have that fairy godmother or that that gay man that's that's sheltering you, you're going to learn a lot very quickly. Um, So, yeah. And how did you get your foot in the door at MTV Networks, VH1 from Atlanta? Was that an internship that you were able to um, get uh, on your own? Did you have a mentor aside from your aunt and grandmother who worked in, you know, who worked in the industry? I wanted to get the hell out of UF. So UF was in Gainesville, Florida. And I was like, I got to get up out of here. So I was a junior. Um, I was over. Everybody would take these internships at the local paper and all this. I was like, I don't like the state of Florida. I don't like Gainesville. I need blackness. I need something else. And so randomly, I came across MTV's internship program. And when I went to go, you know, ask my advisor for it, she originally said no. Because she said, we've never had a student do this. And this is so far. You just need three credits. Why are you trying to? And I was like, why are you trying to put a cap on me? Like the rules are this. You're going to sign this paper. I'm going to get this in this program. And I got in. And then now, you know, it's a program where now they really try to feed students there. But but what was so weird in, in how just God works is my second day of my internship, my boss, my supervisor, her name was Tiffany. She was like, Hey, so I know you're new here, but I'm, you know, I loved you in your interview. I'm going to train you for a good week because I just got a new job at A&E and I'm gone. And I was like, what? Like, hold on. Like, and she was like, I know you were intern, but you know, we, my job about to be open. So they probably going to 1099 you and you just going to be all right. 
And so that immediately let me know, like, get get your purse, girl, get it, get it together because she she finna go. And that's what happened, right? So I started off as an intern. Um, then they made me a coordinator. I was still in college and I figured it out. And I made sure that I wanted to be there. Um, I worked there for about six months. Um, and then I went back to school, finished my degree, and then went back as a full-time employee. So it, it was a very crazy journey. But I think at some point I could have said, you know what? I, oh, I can't do this. This is too much. But I had packed my stuff. I had moved in with my cousin in the Bronx and left. I was like, I can't do this because because ain't nothing in Atlanta. And I'm not about to go back to Gainesville and let these white people say they won and told me I do this anyway. So that made me just kind of grab it by the horns. And, and I think that's just how I look at it, right? I think God puts things in our place and will never put more on us than we can bear. It might be hard as hell. It might look crazy. You, you might be like, how do I have the energy to do this? But you know, as black people, our our superpower is resilience. Like we're gonna figure this out. So um, I just really, you know, live by that. And again, I think it's because every day I understand, like I wasn't supposed to be here. I wasn't supposed to be this smart. I was supposed to be uh, slow or, or have special needs, and and I don't have any of that. So um, that's just how I look at life. I love that absolutely. Um... So you're in, you graduated from college uh, from University of Florida, and you decide to uh, go, go to Turner, right? Didn't you go to Turner Broadcasting? Yep. Then I went to came back home, went to Turner, um, which was really interesting, uh, going from Viacom and then to Turner in Atlanta, much more chill. But yep. And then, we so started. from there, let's talk about your um, your your what you were doing there, and like what you felt like. You, you brought with you from your Viacom experience to this Turner experience. Now you graduate from college, like you're, it's, 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 the real world is here now, right? So you got bills and all these other things you have to do. What was that transition like for you? So honestly, the transition for me was kind of difficult because at Viacom, I had a lot of autonomy to just do what I needed to do. But when I got to Turner, um, it was more of a micromanagement style that I, that, um, they were used to for, for younger staff. Um, the cohort that I went, came in with, it was six of us for the department and um, nobody else had had an internship. So I came in like, oh, well, um, this is fine. I know what I'm doing. Like, this is cool. As long as y'all do campaigns, I got this. And quickly saw that um, they would prefer someone who was completely a blank page than someone that kind of knew the ropes. And so... Um, I think a lot of them didn't like me, to be honest. I think they just were like, he thinks he knows it. And I was very, like, cocky. I mean, I had just come out of, of <laughs> UF. I had, was like, girl, I've worked at MTV. And this little stuff y'all doing, like, this ain't this ain't nothing, you know. And, and so eventually I had to have some humble pie with myself to be like, if this is something I really want to do. And I met some, some great folks. They, they didn't necessarily work with me directly, but... I met like the Lori Halls of the world and, you know, just other folks that we know, Vicky Free, just met folks that were like, hey, black boy, you good. Let me teach you some stuff. Let me show you these ropes, how to navigate this. And that made me say, okay, like this is different because at MTV, the the team was not that diverse. So um, I just wasn't used to that. And so that started to help me. And then when it came down to my like this little 18 month program as a coordinator being done, they asked me if I wanted to stay. And originally I was like, yeah, I need to pay my bills. 
But they did this weird thing where, like, you say your answer and then they tell you if they want you to stay. And surprisingly, they were like, we don't want you to stay. And I was like, how? Like, and I started to read off all the things I'd done. I'm like, I just did your film festival. I did this. I did this. Like, look at all my. And they were like, we feel like, i never forget this because I, I didn't understand it. They were like, this place is too small for you. And I was like, how you say that to somebody that's like, what you mean it's too small for me? Like, my bills are real. Like, they're not small. So what's up, you know? And um, I was crushed. And like four. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. For black folks that were in the department, like got around me, walked me outside, gave me words of encouragement, and was like, do not cry. Like, do not let them see you sweat. Like, understand, we got you, whatever. And they immediately were like, here's some leads. Let me know what you're interested in. And that's what actually bounced me over to the agency side. Um, someone I worked with, um, was a uh, had formerly worked with uh, my manager um, at another agency, and she was just starting to build out the multicultural team at this general market firm. And they were like, "It's it's just you in if you want it, it's yours." And so um, I had worked with agencies before through all both my jobs, but never, you know. And I always heard like, "Oh my gosh, they do all the work, they do all the things, they get underpaid." And I was like, "Why would I want to go do this?" Right? But then I was like. I like to always feel like a Swiss Army knife and have a lot of different skills. So let me go try this and see. And so that's what got me out of Turner and over to the agency side, which, you know, then just became a whirlwind. <laughs> so. And how long did you do agency life? Because, by the way, that you were able to rebound from that. And I love that you were just embraced, like, immediately by the the OGs at the company. And they were like, don't sweat it. We got you. And I think that a lot of us do that organically. I know you do it in your business. John does it and, you know, has done it throughout his career. I, I, I certainly try to do it. And so even when you have unofficial mentors we're still supporting and, and, and building each other up. So you get to the agency side and John and I both have worked in, in agencies and woo, it is more than a notion. And so it's so amazing, Roy, that not only did you go to this agency, but then you launch your own. So you are the Swiss army knife of agencies. Talk about that transition from being how, how long you were at the agency to creating your own. Yeah, so I was at the agency almost two full years. I left two days before it would have been my second year anniversary. And when I jumped into the world, the role, um, loved my team, was like, let's go, let's get this. We were building, you know, building and going and growing accounts and, you know, had tripled accounts and, you know, did about um, a few million in our first year, just adding and added value to, to corporate clients and, and, we used to get hung up on the way we had to do our work, right? The system, the the weird things that, you know, just why people would do sometimes that you would just be like, these are microaggressions. And honestly, like, why am I dealing with this every day? This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And we would sit in um, what is now my chief operating officer. Huh? Uh, we would sit in her office and be like, we can take this over. Like, there is a revolution. We can do this. We can do this. And um, quickly... I just kept saying, I'm a hold out. This is they're gonna see our value. Uh, they're gonna 
they're gonna they're gonna do right by us. They, I just you know trying to be an optimist. And I had a review, and my review was amazing. And they gave me this baby raise, and I never forget. I wanted to flip that coffee table and was like, "What is this? Like who? Like?" And um, my boss was very transparent. He was like, "Listen, I asked for more. This is all they're willing to do." And if you want more, you probably have to leave and come back because they just, this is just how the culture is here. And I was like, okay, so my final nail in the coffin was me trying to bring in another account. And there was an RFP for the city of Atlanta for a sexual assault campaign. Um, A colleague, someone I knew, I used to work at Turner, said, hey, come be a part of this RFP. Only two agencies, us and one more. And my um, SVP said no. He wouldn't even let us bid on the project because he felt like because it was city money, it was only going to be, you know, a, a few thousand dollars. And I'm like, bro, that's not I promise you. They told me, like, just for the purposes of the RFP, it has to be this amount. And he said no. And it was all about um, an awareness campaign because um, they had started to see an increase in minorities being sexually assaulted in the state of Georgia, especially black women. And so, of course, heartstrings. I'm like, this is the work we need to be doing, like get a new beverage. Like, this is what we need to be doing a little bit of. And um, they said no. Two weeks later, other agency wins bid, $5 million budget. I'm sitting in a meeting like, y'all don't trust me. This is my last thing. I can't help you here. And so I left. Um, and But I gave them very clear notion that when I leave, these three main accounts that I work for are going to leave with me. My clients are not going to be happy. So millions of dollars are going to come out the door with me. And they thought, because I was young, that that was not going to be the case. And Lord and behold, as soon as I left, a week later, all three accounts left as well. I went over, became a marketing director for Allstate because I said, forget agency life. I don't want to deal with this. That was the worst job of my life. Passive project managers that were not marketers uh, that I had inherited and I quit. I was like, this ain't it. And then I started my agency. And three months into starting my agency, my first corporate client, my old client, AT&T, called and said, hey, that POV you wrote on Essence Festival two years ago, we're ready to activate. Can you negotiate? I know you have a business. I know you just got started, but let's get this moving. And then, you know, after that, it was we, we just kept rolling. And you kept on rolling. Here you are. Authentique is flourishing, busy, so many great clients. But I know it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always a cakewalk. I mean, thinking about you being a marketer, being an owner of your business, having employees, that takes time and work and effort and things like that. So talk about what the journey was like for you starting your business from scratch, because it was probably like a team of one for the, for a while, right? Oh, and wow. and then you really started to build out. I mean, I know you have office space and like you have a you know team of fifty people now. Like it's really evolved. But I really want our viewers to know and our listeners to know that like it wasn't it didn't come out like that. It wasn't always like that from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely not. So um, you know, entrepreneurship was never um never my dream, right? So I didn't. I had to learn how to be a business owner. Right. There were I could run an agency. I knew this. I knew billing. I knew this. But then you talk about legal paperwork and business taxes and and HR, true HR (laughs) concerns. I'm like, who is that? Who knows that? So um, when I first started, I really was like, Roy, what the hell are you thinking? Like, 
you know, but, 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 cause I was just like, and I was like, let's see if it works. Right. I was like, let's see if it works. Um, and it showed me that it worked, but it took me time to educate myself, to, to do a lot of reading, to say, you know, I'm not going to go out on the weekend. I'm going to actually go listen to these TED talks to feel inspired. Like I need to figure out how people, you know, these podcasts, how I built this, like all those things, because the people that I knew in business were like Morgan Devon, right? One of my closest friends. Morgan's a freaking genius, right? So it was like, she was smart. Boom, she had the idea. Boom, millions, right? And I was like, that ain't that ain't what I'm working with, right? Uh, that ain't what it's about to be. So I got to really figure out, like, how am I going to uh, learn and, and stay committed? And honestly, it was a faith walk. There were, in our second year in business, we had a client ditch us for like half a mil. Just they went bankrupt. And I almost lost it. Like literally almost closed the agency. You know, forget it. I have contacts. Let me go work for a brand. Um, but through a lot of hard prayer and a lot of just um, faithfulness, it turned around. And so I still get chills, right? We just moved in downtown Atlanta um, into our new office space which is 8,000 square feet. And like, we're about to be at capacity with it. We just moved in. And I'm like, Lord, I walked walked around yesterday, like, who are these people? Like, good, good, you know? And so it still feels surreal. But more than anything, you know, I I was opening a new uh, old box from the storage unit and I saw like my first t-shirt I ever made, right? And just got teary-eyed because I can't believe it's been seven years. And now, you know, it's, it's, it's happening, right? But I also will never forget having to chase down a FedEx truck for a check, having to decide to go turn in my Mercedes truck and get a Ford Fusion, nothing against Ford. But that was one of the biggest things that like I was like, huh, like I never forget those immediate sacrifices that I made those first few years um, until we started to make money. And then even when we started to make money, I still didn't do what most CEOs do and like take that salary. Like I just took my real salary last year because I wanted to make sure we were good. I was like, I do not want to have to kill my team because I'm loading so much work on them. No, like let's make sure resource management that we're scaling correctly. And so, um, you know, it's been a blessing. And then finally, what I always tell people is if you don't know something, just go ahead and be real with yourself and say you don't know something and find someone that does and put them around you, right? Make them make them start to mentor you. Even if you, I remember there was a lawyer I wanted and I couldn't afford him. And I had to literally ask him like, look, well, can Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cut off? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Can I just sit in on some, some if you have lunch, meet and greet something? Because I just need to be able to just be around this and understand this. I'm going to get this other lawyer to be able to get through it. But can I can I start to? And now that's, you know, our general counsel. He's been with us four years, but he has been around my journey of when I started. So he so when we sit down or I have an issue, he's come to me because it's my friend. It's not somebody that's trying to just build me, you know, and, and say, we know y'all get X number of contracts and I can see him come through, run me my money. No, he he still build me like I'm still that same startup because that's still how I operate. Um, so I think it's about 
just being honest with yourself. And it took me a while, right? Because I was kept saying, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to be HR. I'm going to be. Now, the one thing I was never trying to be was finance. I would tell you that all the way. I can spend money real quick, but that reporting and all the other stuff you got to do, I was like, that ain't me. But other than that, um, it just it just takes that. And people have to stick with it because it's like a roller coaster. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. But eventually you're going to coast. And then and then it's just going to come easy. Right. One thing for us as an agency, we've never had to cold call. We've never had to do anything like that because I believe that our work will speak for itself. I don't feel like chasing. I'm not doing that. I'm working for people that want to make a difference, that are in these positions and need support. They can't get full-time bodies. So, hey, here's an agency that can help you do this. Uh, but you got to be down with the mission and the vision of Authentique. And, and you have to align with our values, which are culture, community, and purpose. And if you don't, then it's not happening. If you say, hey, you know, because of George Floyd, we're not doing this, I usually hang up the phone because that's not the kind of business and the money that I want. So um, authenticity is key. And I always say transactional relationships, just like from the segment, authenticity is the same thing. They need not to apply. Like, we don't want that. So all the sacrifices that you make and all the things that you're learning along the way, the stuff that you loved about day-to-day and agencies and I, I, what was that? Was it the, the creative aspect of pitching clients and then are you able to continue to do that sort of work now or is it running the business that's taking up more of your time? Talk us about talk to us about your day to day. What does that look like? So now, Didi, I'm blessed to say my day to day is pretty awesome because I have so many bodies that I can kind of just be the happy police some days. Right. Um, but um what I loved about agency life was, number one, the people I worked with. I felt like you got all these, like almost if you saved a whole bunch of screws and, and nails around your house for various things and you open this drawer, I think that's what an agency is. You get all these personalities that's mixed up, but we all have a different purpose. And then, then you put us in these segments to say work together. And so, um, you know, there were some amazing people I worked with that are now on my staff, right? I don't shy away from that. Yes, I say like, I'm like Harriet Tubman. If you're a black creative and you're working for the white man and this ain't working right for you and you need a job, hit me because I'm going to make sure that your genius is valued, that you feel amazing and that you just don't feel like every day someone has sucked the life out of you like a Dementor from Harry Potter and you just be done, right? So, um that's one thing. The, the second part from a day-to-day standpoint for me, um, usually I'm either in our Atlanta or our Nashville office. Um, and then I am just out trying to make sure we stay committed to the communities that we're a part of. So that might be like going to lunches for the Urban League, going to fundraisers, um, but then also doing some meeting and some client touching, right? For some of our clients, I might not have seen for a while, right? Because I'm not on the calls weekly or bi-weekly. Hey, can we grab lunch? Hey, I'm going to be in town. Hey, I know your son has a birthday party. Just trying to do those kind of things because we like our clients to feel like family. And so that's something that I want our culture to continue to be. Um, because if you whack, like, it's not going to work out. I tell people that all the time. Like, in the beginning, we see right through it. We'll be like, it's not a good fit. I'm sorry. Let us get you this deliverable and we're going to throw the deuces because we want you to really be um, with us and feel like you have a sounding board and an advocate and a friend that's, that's helping you along the way, not a doer, not a task manager. That ain't us. So um, that's my that's my day to day now. Um, if my and then you know, sometimes I get to be HR still a little bit. You know, if somebody not doing their job and I got to come in and 
hey, what's going on? You know, but um, for the most part, pretty smooth sailing at this point. Um, and that, you know, that's really just because I have the team um, that I didn't always have. So now I let them operate in their swim lanes and, and do what they need to do. And I trust them for that. Right. I never try to micromanage what they're doing. I'm like, y'all got that? Let me know what you need, right? And so I always say, if they could get my signature on a stamp, they probably would not call me <laughs> probably twice a week. <laughs> um, so that is, that's a, Oh, sorry. I have one thing that I have to say, and then I'm going to give it to John. Um, and this is what happens with us. We have these amazing guests that one of us knows better, or we think we know them better. And then we get to talking to them and we're like, wait, we got to ask this. We got to ask that. Like, so this is a common thing between between John and I. Go but ahead, girl. Go ahead. Say in connecting the dots, I am envisioning your grandmother and your grandfather doing the work that they did, raising money for the civil rights movement, and I'm seeing this is your version of that. Do you feel that? Do you see that? So it clicked for me probably about four weeks ago. I had a whole. I was on a plane. And I was just thinking, I was up looking at the clouds and I was just thinking and then it hit me and I just went bawling. And I felt so bad for the white lady sitting next to me because I'm sure she didn't know what was happening because I'm (laughs) an ugly crier. And I just was like, wow. So that's the beautiful part. When people ask me now, like, where's Authentic going to be in five years? What do you see? I would say like, look, it's greater than what I ever imagined. And we're in year seven. So this is God. So, So guess what? Ask God. And just stay and be a part of the journey and support us along the way, because um, I still look around and say, wow. Um, And even when I start to compare, right, because everybody does that, right? You start to look in competitors and start to be like, oh, you know, I remember that, you know, um, comparison is the killer of joy. And so why am I doing that? Why is it's I'm I created my own path because I felt like at an agency I couldn't be my full self every day. So whether I wanted to wear a poncho or I wanted to wear a, a, a tracksuit or I wanted to put on a turtleneck and have my rainbow pin or I wanted to have platinum blonde hair, like I felt like I couldn't do that. And so I've created something new. So there is no comparison, right? Um we might have imitators out there, but that's a whole nother thing. So and that is who you are. You are authentic, authentic, authentic. You are just who you are, who you are. And I, and I, I've, I've always admired and loved that about you, Roy, because, you know, I remember when you called me to tell me you were doing this agency thing, my own fear for you started to like, I'm like, wait, is he, is this going to happen? Is he ready? Like, this is just a lot, but you're doing it and you're doing it so well. And I'm, and I'm so, I'm so proud of you. And I've gotten a chance to work with you at BET. So it's, it's been such a, a beautiful journey just seeing the, the the beginnings of you literally at Turner to your agency life to now owning and operating your own agency. And I will say to you, I think every job you've had, you've kind of, you learned something from it. You've been able to bring a tool of you to the next opportunity. And that, that makes you for a good leader. And I think that's something to be very, very proud about. Um, so congratulations on everything that you're doing. And I know there's so much more you're, you're going to be accomplishing. Um, as you know, Didi and I have been working on this, this project of ours called Black on the Scene. And 
we are just our little baby. We're so proud of it. This is our own little authentic baby that we have. Um, but we really wanted to just shine a light on the the notion of representation and the notion that representation matters in this industry. And I think it's it's very important for people to understand that, you know, a, a black gay guy from Atlanta can can start his own agency and, you know, can be a millionaire because I know you're on your way there. Um, and that's just a beautiful thing to celebrate. And that is a part of our love letter to, to, to this industry. And we wanted to, to ask you, what is your love letter to the Black entertainment space? What is your love letter that really shines a light on representation and why you do the work that you do day to day? My love letter um, to the Black entertainment industry um, would be to keep creating and keep driving the narrative, um, keep diving into culture and pushing limits, keep um, making these people pay for our genius, right? Keep um, inspiring, teaching others, um, hiring crews, hiring folks that you know, um, putting people on, like, like keep doing those things because the world is noticing and we are a force to be work, reckoned with. Um, I also would say to also keep the pace, right? Like we're, we've been doing amazing things, a lot of productions, a lot of things you see it, you know, but, but also let's hold each other accountable, right? Let's, let's prevent burnout. So let's do more collaboration. Let's do things so that, um, as fun and as exciting, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you work in entertainment, it's always that. People say, oh, it looks so fun, right? But when you work in it, you'd be like, ooh, you know, it can be rough, right? But but keep being transparent about what a day in the life is, right? Um, and, and keep sharing, finally, um, the wealth. Keep sharing the knowledge. Um, but more than anything, like, let's keep getting damn paid. Um, because if we stop, they won't have nothing to watch. So um, I think we have to remember that. Um, there's a little Nat Turner in me, uh, but I also feel like um, more than anything, it's our time. And so um, that's that's my love letter um, to Black, the Black Entertainment Network. I think that more than anything, um, we're, we're going to keep doing it. Um, we're going to keep creating dope work, things and pushing limits. And, and you know, um, I can think about several people that, you know, you would never think of. Right. Even if you think about Issa Rae. Right. Like, keep keep it up, right? Who the hell would think awkward black girl? Like, come on. Like, so if she can do it, there are millions more out there that can, right? Lena, right? Like, like lean into who you are. And um, again, um, make them respect your genius and, and honor what you bring to the table, which is more than your appetite. Roy, we certainly respect your genius. We love it. John has been telling me along the way since you guys have been working together just how truly he enjoys. And John does not hand out flowers very easily. Let me I tell know you. he does not, girl. He will yeah. not. Uh, Roy, uh, Roy knows. <laughs> <laughs> he will not. He does not. And so when John sings your praises, I listen and, you know, waiting for my opportunity. We'll talk about that offline. But we see you. We thank you for representing so hard for us. And I know you're pulling people up in your company, outside of the company, with the community work that you do. And we thank you for that. We see you. We love you. We celebrate you. Keep shining. 
Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Roy. We love you. I love y'all too. Thank you so much to our guests and to you for listening to this week's episode of Black on the Scene. We'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review, plus share your own love letter for Black entertainment and follow us on all social media platforms at Black on the Scene. See you next time. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.